Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn them to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to continue in our series, Unstoppable. You can pick up the outline right out there, the center doors, right at the ministry counter as soon as you go out those doors. But today in this passage, we are celebrating and looking at the birth date. The birthday of the church, the, the first day of the church is what we're going to be looking at. And it's a really, really special day. I, I don't know if you realize it. It's a really special day. Because it was, in one sense, it was conceived by Jesus in Matthew 16, where he says to Peter, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded by saying, you are right. For this was not revealed to you by, by a man, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you didn't get this on your own. But you got this from God is what he's saying. And then Jesus said, upon your confession, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then it happened. The church was born, right? The church was born, conceived sort of, but really it was conceived way back here before the creation of the world would ever began, before it was created, right? The church was not God's plan B. That was God's plan all along. We're going to see that this morning. But this is the day in this passage, this is the day that it happened, that the, the day that the church was born. And when we look at these verses, we will find, if you have your outlines, three actions for us to imitate. And the first one is this. Let's display the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's display the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enables them. One of the things we notice in the background of this passage is when Jesus Christ died upon the cross for our sins, the Bible says the veil of the temple was torn, separating those two compartments, was torn from top to bottom, separating the holy from the holy of holies, indicating a lot of things. But one of the things that it did indicate that the old system, that the old covenant was now gone in Christ. And the new covenant was about to begin. Once, one of the significant things about this, that in the old covenant, the, the, cover, the, the presence of God was realized in a place. Is either the tabernacle, the temple, or the Ark of the Covenant. But now that's all going to change. Because the presence of God is going to be recognized in a person. Not in a place, but in a person. And the scriptures ask the question, well, Paul asked the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. He says, don't you know that you're not your own, but you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. And then he goes on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 16 and 17, he says, he uses the word you. But the original language, you, is plural. And he says, you are the temple of God. You collectively, you corporately. He's saying all of you are the temple of God. That when you came to Jesus Christ as your Savior and trusted him as your Savior, that moment, the Holy Spirit came to live with inside of you. And he'll live inside of you to the day of redemption. And now you are the, the t God's temple. The Holy Spirit lived inside of you. And he says, all of us as followers of Jesus Christ, you have living inside of you the Spirit of the living God. Think about that. When you really understand that, that means so much, doesn't it? What that means is it means when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us after we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, He came as the down payment for the completion of a redemption until we see Jesus one day, right? Amen, that He does that. 
And as long as we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have the down payment that it's going to happen. And I said, as long as we have him living inside of us, well, how long are we going to have him living inside of us? Always, right? So it's a promise. It's a guarantee that it's going to happen, that one day that you and I who know Jesus Christ, our Savior, will be with Jesus forever and ever with a glorified body, right? And he's going to complete our redemption. When the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, while we're here on this earth, he does all kinds of things. But one of the things he does, he convicts us of sin, right? You guys know that. If you're a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and you, you do something to disobey God or don't honor his word, you can go about your business, but the Holy Spirit's not going to let go, is he? He's convicting you until you deal with it, till you confess that sin. So we know about that. He's going to convict us of sin. But another thing he does, he helps us in times of trouble. We're in a jam. We don't know what to do. He gives us direction and guidance. And even sometimes he intercedes and helps us to pray, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. The Holy Spirit intercedes and prays for us because we don't know what to pray. The fact of the matter is you're never alone. Do you realize that? That uh, you can go out in the woods and say, man, look around and see nobody and say, man, I'm all alone. But you're never alone. You're never alone when you know Jesus Christ is your Savior because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you to comfort you when you're hurting, to direct you when you don't know where to go, to convict you in the midst of sin, to give you strength when in the midst of temptation, just to be there with you, to help you, to guide you, to lead you because he loves you so much and he wants what's best for you. Now we're together, the temple of God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope you don't think it's this building, and you think of the church as a building with the address with 251 with it. Hope you don't think of that, because that's not the church. Hope you realize that. The church is not them. The church is us. You realize that. It's not that. It's, we don't look at the building. Oh, this is the church. No, this is the church. I often said, I said it a couple weeks ago, I, it would be really cool if on the front of our sign out front would have say, say this is the place where Crossroads Community Church meets. Because this building is not the church. This property is not the church. You are the church. Those who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the church. And, the, and it says we are one body. And we fellowship together. We pray together. We worship together. We study God's word together. We grow together in Jesus. We rejoice together and we weep together. We do all those things together. See, with the tearing of that veil, the old is fulfilled and the new has arrived. And the temple of God is in us, not in the building, not in the building. It's in us. You know Christ is your savior. That's what he's saying here. Notice what happens here. It says they were gathered here at Pentecost Pentecost is a, is a feast day that involved opening it up to non-Jewish people. So all kinds of people would come in, and they wanted to celebrate the bounty of the harvest. So it was at the end of harvest season, and they are celebrating that, and their people are gathered. And there are people living in Jerusalem, and they're celebrating, and some are Jews, and some from other nations, and they speak different languages, is what we find out here. And so they, they come there in the celebration of Pentecost. This is the day that the church will begin. This is the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost. We find here in this passage where it says they were all together in verse 1. The Holy Spirit has promised. He, he said he's going to come on disciples like never before. And what we see here, we find evidence of that displayed in the presence of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in verse 3 where it says this. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. The tongues indicates the divine presence rests upon them. That's what we see here. When it uses the word fire in verse 3, we find the word fire four times in the book of Exodus. 
We find it first in Exodus chapter 3 in where? The burning bush. We find in Exodus chapter 13, we regard the pillar of fire. We find it later on in Exodus chapter 24, the top of Mount Sinai is the consuming fire. We find it in Exodus chapter 40 as there is a hovering fire over the tabernacle. It is a reference and symbol of the presence of God is what we see here. When Moses came to the burning bush, what did he do? He took the sandals off his feet because he was what? On holy ground. He was in the presence of God. So fire is a reference to the presence of God here is what we see. Notice the word tongues. We go on to read they spoke in tongues or languages that they had never learned. And so that people could hear the gospel message in a language they did not know. How did that happen? Did that happen by a crash course in that program called Rosetta Stone? That they came and they learned that real quick? Or did it happen by the Holy Spirit? Which one would you think? It was the Holy Spirit that taught them that. They spoke uh, 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 those languages that, uh, that it was a gift of God for that moment, for that day, so the gospel message could expand from those 120 people to 3,000 people who would accept the gospel message that day. Today, you and I, we need to display the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's living within us for a reason. He's living amongst us for a reason. And we must display him, what the Bible's saying. The amazing thing about church is we can do church, and to answer that question we started with a couple of weeks ago, how can we do that? How can we carry the baton and do it so well? The answer to that question is we can't without him, right? We can't do it without him. We can't do it without God. I mean, we can, don't get me wrong, we can do church. We can do all kinds of things in church. We can build buildings. We can have programs. We can have classes. We can have vacation Bible schools and maybe in Awana. We can, we can have uh, uh, picnics and potlucks and all those kind of things. But if God is not in it, it's not going to go anywhere, is it? Nothing's going to happen. We might as well be called the Kiwanis Club, the Lions Club, the Elks or the Moose or the Buffalo. It's not a God thing, right? Might as well be called that. To be a church of God, according to Scripture, it's not a matter of reading the latest book. And that's what many people are looking to read the latest book that's out there. It's not a, a matter of the newest or latest curriculum that's out there. It's not a matter of the greatest gimmick or, or the greatest kind of uh, scheme that's out there. Or even the latest mood. Many people say, well, God needs a mood to get things going in a church. we got to create the mood. To build the church of God, we have to go to back to what was on that day. And what was on that day is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what matters, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. As each of you come here on Sunday morning to worship, the Holy Spirit is amongst us. Hopefully you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you as individuals. That's powerful. That we come in here as a, as a group of believers and the Holy Spirit lives inside us. That's power. And I hope you remember that as you come in here on Sunday mornings as we're worshiping. And every time you sing and you lift up your voices in adoration and praise to God, that we're not the audience. God is the audience. Do you realize that? You're not singing to me. You're not singing to each other. You're singing to Almighty God. He's the one listening. He's the one watching to what we're doing here. And when you lift up your voice, God knows if it's just words. He knows if it's just you're just motioning. He knows if you're just doing it and you got something on your mind and you're just reading those words up on a page. Or he knows if you're pouring out your heart, soul, mind, and strength to him in real, real worship where you're committing yourself to him and understand what he's done for you. See, we need to display the Holy Spirit as we carry the baton and build the church. That's what he's called us to do. In the next verses, I want you to notice as it's describing what's happening here and that these 120 people 
who are speaking languages they never learned. And all of a sudden, people start to come out of their houses, and they're coming to see what is going on over there with all these people. They don't get it. So what do they say? They, they say, these people must be filled with wine. In other words, they're drunk. And Peter says, no, 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 no. It's too early to be drinking wine. It's too early to be drunk. Something is happening here. What's happening? They're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And God gave them a, a gift of language they did not learn. So Peter begins to preach a message. He, he steps up to leadership like he did in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, like he did in Acts chapter 1. And he shares with these people. And some of these people are doubters. Some are mockers, but there are many of them are curious right here what he's going to say. And Peter goes, you should not be surprised because what is happening here is what's promised in the Old Testament in the book of Joel and in other places that as this day, as this day begins, the Holy Spirit would come and show up and God would show up and do things that we've never seen before is what he says. And I want you to notice not only do we need to display the presence of the Holy Spirit, this section action for us is Number two, let's embrace and share the plan of God. Let's embrace and share the plan of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, Peter's addressing the men of Israel. So you Jews in, in Jerusalem, Acts chapter, all the three chapter 7 in the book of Acts, the emphasis is on the Jews from there. So you understand it. In the book of Acts, all the way through chapter 7, the emphasis is on the Jews. So verses 22 through 24 is emphasizing to the Jews. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Notice in verse 24, it says, but God raised him from the dead. That's the resurrection. It's talking about the resurrection. And the resurrection and theme of it would continue on from verse 25, where he says, David died just like Jesus, but unlike David, Jesus came forth from the grave because the grave could not hold him. And God brought Jesus forth from the grave. And the plan of God is, we have to understand, is very simple. It's Jesus, isn't it? That Jesus being God, came down to this earth from heaven, and he went and he died on the cross for our sins. That God, on that cross, that God made, God made him sin for us, that who, knew, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And then he was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the gospel message. In John 3, 16, it said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel message, right? Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us. Though I will still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel message. And that's so important that we don't mess it up. We can't mess it up, right? We can't mess up the gospel. That was the central message through the early church and all through church history, that the gospel has to be kept in its purity has to become unadulterated. We can't change it. Paul says that the Galatian believers, the book of Galatians says, don't add to it, don't subtract from it, because if you do that, it's another gospel, a gospel of a different kind that can't do anything for you, he says. Can't save you or do anything for you. Matter of fact, it goes on. If me or you or an angel from heaven would preach another gospel, he says, let him be eternally condemned. The message supersedes the messenger is what it's saying. And we don't mess with the gospel. 
We have to keep the gospel in all of its purity. The gospel is not a social gospel where we reduce the gospel to try to meet the needs of mankind. Uh, that, that should be included. We need to do that, but, to, but that's just an, an expression of the gospel. It's not a replacement of the gospel. You understand that? We have to keep the gospel the what it is. We don't just say Jesus came here to enlighten your life or, or to help you out in your life or to make you feel better or even to save your marriage. More, it's more than that. Jesus didn't come and say, you need to adopt these moral principles and follow these rules and regulations. Jesus came for many reasons. But the central point and the central reason that Jesus came to this earth was to die on the cross for our sins. Amen? That's the gospel. And we never want to forget it. That's the gospel. I want you to notice in verse 23. It says in verse 23, because it shows the death of Christ, the divine responsibility, but also the human responsibility and the human actions. All in this one little verse right here in verse 23. It's so important. He says, this man, meaning Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Every theology book will try to ask and answer the question, who killed Jesus? They all try to do that. You read theology books. And there are all kinds of answers, and all, all of them sort of right. And the first one, it says, he's addressing the men of Israel in verse 22, and then he gets to verse 23, and he says, you, you killed Jesus with the help of wicked men. And you look at the Jews today, they're very offended by that because you're saying, as a nation, we killed Jesus. And what they come back and say, no, the Jews at that time, they killed Jesus. They're responsible for, it, for killing Jesus, not us. They are way back then. Some will say, no, it wasn't the Jews. It was the Romans. The Romans were the ones who put Jesus on the cross. They're the ones that did that. They're the ones that cast lots for his clothing. clothing. They're the ones that killed Jesus. But then others will say, there's another possible answer. It's us who killed Jesus. For he died for our sins and our transgressions, didn't he? The Bible says he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So all of us, from a human perspective, we're all responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. He went to the cross. We can't point our fingers at the Jews or the Romans. We have to say, no, my sins put Jesus on that cross. I'm responsible for Jesus being on that cross. But God didn't stand there, and when that, when that took place, God didn't say, oh man, look what they did to my son. What a tragedy. God, God wasn't doing that at that time. You, you understand it, right? God wasn't cut off guard. It's, oh, I can't believe they did this to my son. And verse 23 gives us the divine responsibility. It says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Foreknowledge in the Bible does not mean in the Bible it was thought of ahead of time. Or, or, or it was that he thought of ahead of time that it was going to happen. Or he looked and saw what was going to happen to Jesus because he looked in the future and saw what people were going to do. That's not what it means in the Bible or not. Foreknowledge means it was planned by God. It was his set purpose and agenda that before the foundation of the world was ever created, God had planned that Jesus Christ would die upon that cross at this exact moment in time. This is the central point of all human history. It was all in the plan of God that Jesus would come and die on that cross, and nothing was going to stop it. That God planned that before the creation of the world ever began. Before you and I were created, anyone was on this earth, God already had that plan set in place that his son Jesus was going to come and die that exact day, that exact moment, and nothing was going to stop it. So all of these human pieces, some unwittingly, was there. 
would accomplish that plan that God had, that God had foreordained before the world began. That's what foreknowledge means. Before it all began, God did this. It was already in his plan. There's a story of, of a man that I was reading an article a while back, and I believe he was going to Carlsberg Cavern, and I kind of like the story. As a family, they were going deep underground at this particular cavern. It went really deep. And when they got down at the bottom, they turned the lights off. And he said, at that moment, they recognized the depth of the darkness. It was utter darkness. But not only did they recognize that, they recognized the quietness. He had an 11-year-old son. He had a 7-year-old daughter, and his 7-year-old daughter began to cry. And somebody said, don't worry, don't cry. Somebody here knows how to turn the lights on. And I thought, that's the gospel, isn't it? Because the one who knows how to turn on the lights is, is God, isn't he? That all of you, all of us are in the depths of a cavern. We're in total and utter darkness, totally without God, the Bible said, in the depths of that darkness. And it's only going to get worse. And there's nothing we can do about it. We can't climb out of this utter darkness. And when we come in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And as a result, we are alienated from the presence and holiness of an almighty God. But it was the light of the gospel that changed all that, right? It was the light of the gospel that changed it all. Otherwise, you and I are stuck in that darkness, and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior, and the gospel was presented during that service, the same gospel that was presented 2,000 years ago. That's what's so amazing. The same message that was presented 2,000 years ago is when I heard it and what I'm preaching today. That same message goes out. And that day, the light of the gospel came out, and I understood it, and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then I, I started that process, that journey of being a disciple. Started growing in the knowledge of Jesus, of the Bible, and I started growing to be more like Jesus. And shortly after that, I was baptized in water. We're all in the same darkness. All of us in the same darkness. There are some who take that darkness a little deeper, don't they? They get involved in things and, and helps them to come to the conclusion that nothing can save me out of this darkness. That Jesus can't save me out of this. This light can't change me. Nothing can change me. And so they get to the place where they say, there's no way out of this. And sometimes they even want to end it because they think there's no way out. In the depths of whatever darkness that you might be in today, or whoever you know might be in, the light of the gospel shines. In that light, there's no one beyond the reach of that light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where you go, the depths you go and try to run from God, the light of the gospel can reach that person no matter who they are, where they've gone, how far they've gone, how far the corrupt they might be. The, the light of the gospel can reach their hearts and their minds. That's what's so amazing about the gospel. My question to you is, how about you? Has that light of the gospel reached your heart and mind? Do we have a before story and after story of Jesus? This was my life before Jesus, and now this is my life after Jesus. That's the gospel. Do you realize that that's what's changed you, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. You didn't change yourself because I decided to start going to church. It was the gospel of Jesus before and after. See, we not only have to display the presence of the Holy Spirit, we also have to embrace and share the plan of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third action I want you to notice is let's respond to the name of Jesus. Let's respond. Peter continued to preach and teach and, and, uh, about Jesus, and he was really emphasizing the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which is the core of the gospel. And, and what he's saying, there are many eyewitnesses to this, that Jesus revealed himself to small groups and large groups, some groups as large as 500 people. So the skeptics all through the years can go back to those eyewitness accounts and realize the resurrection was real. 
and that God was satisfied with the death of his son upon that cross. So the people responded in verse 37. Listen to what they say. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I want you to know, first of all, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart means it, it connotes a sharp pain associating with anxiety and a response. You know what that is? It's the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was convicting them right there, what to do. And the scripture tells us in the Gospel of John, the night before Jesus was crucified, he shared with the disciples, says, I'm going to be leaving, and the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. No one can come to Christ without that peace. Do you realize that? No one can come to Jesus without that peace, with the Holy Spirit. That we recognize we're a sinner, and we can't save ourselves, so we desperately need a Savior. And it's the Holy Spirit that's drawing you. No one came to Christ without the Holy Spirit. You may think you did, but you didn't. You didn't. Just read the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. No one comes to Jesus on their own. I don't care if you're by yourself. It's the Holy Spirit that's drawn us, drawn us to understand that we're sinners in need of a Savior. That's what he does. He draws us to help us to understand it, and he brings us to that point. So we see that they, they were cut to the heart, and they asked the question it only seems logical to ask at that time. They say, if this is Jesus, and this is the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was buried and raised from the dead, they asked the question, then what shall we do? What shall we do now we understand this? And here's the response that Peter gives them in verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let me go through this. He says, repent. Repent means to change one's mind or to turn from. In other words, you turn 180 from here. I believe in this passage, it means really two things when I've, in my studies. One, it means before this, these people thought of Jesus as a blasphemer of God. They thought he was a false prophet, a false teacher, and many other things. And now they understand that he's the Son of God, that he's Messiah. And he died on the cross for their sins, was buried and raised from the dead. So they have a different take. So they repent of what they thought of Jesus, and they're to turn toward Jesus. Repent. Turn toward him. The other is, they, under, they realize they're sinners, and they realize what they did to Jesus, that they crucified him, and they repent of that and all their sins, and they turn toward Jesus. That's what repent means to turn, to change one's mind. They return toward Jesus. When they turn toward Jesus, what does that mean? What they're meaning, repent, they turn toward Jesus. They accept him. They believe in him. They receive him. They accept him as their savior at that time that he died on the cross for them. Then the Bible says they were to be baptized. That's like identification with the work of Christ in their life and what Jesus did. The person of Jesus Christ, that identifies us when we're baptized. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your savior, at that moment in time when you receive Christ as your Savior, verse 38 says, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right at that moment. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is talked about in many other different places in Scripture. But the Holy Spirit baptizes us or places us in the body of Christ, and then he comes to live inside of us, is what the Bible says right there. So what we see here in this passage, they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's get it straight. They repent. They turn from their sins. They turn from who they thought Jesus was, and they turn toward Christ, and they believe, and they accept what Peter is saying about who Jesus is, that he died on the cross for their sins. He was buried and raised on the third day, and they accept that. Then they were baptized in water. That's what we see here. That's the response. That's the response. Every person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ will respond. 
And you may be here and you say, well, I'm not going to choose. But not to choose is really to choose. You know that, right? When you say, I'm not going to choose, you're really rejecting Jesus and what he did. Once a person hears the gospel, and by the way, every one of you this morning has at least heard the gospel one time. If you probably counted, it was three or four times I shared the gospel this morning already. You've probably heard it at least one time. So we're all responsible to the gospel. We've all heard it. We're responsible. What, what are we going to do? We have to get the answer. What are we going to do? And the answer was given to that question right here in verse 38. So the answer comes, what will you do with it? What will you do with the gospel? We see what Peter says to do with it right here. We see what he says. I love the next verse, what he says in verse 39. He says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. He said, this isn't for you only, it's for all people. It's not just for the Jews and Gentiles that were in Jerusalem. He said, it's for people for, to the end of the earth. It's for everyone. All those that God has called to himself is what he says. All those that God has called to himself. And that day, 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that day, the church was, was born. And all through the ages, that same gospel has been preached. As church after church picks up the baton and they share that message. And maybe it's at a family retreat where 25 people come to know Christ. Maybe it's at a VBS where five or six children come, or, or maybe in a wand, or maybe at a service, or maybe it's someone sitting across the table from someone at McDonald's or a restaurant where they take out a napkin, or they turn over that placemat, and they begin to draw pictures or a diagram and show that Jesus bridges the gap between fallen man and an almighty God. And then they share some verses. And that person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior. And one more person is added to the church, to the body of Christ, to the bride of Christ, to the kingdom. One more person. One by one, people are coming. And they're carrying the baton. The application today is very easy. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you have to choose to obey him today. To positively respond to him by accepting the gospel message. Or you say, I'm going to choose to put it off. And what you're really saying, I'm going to reject Jesus. I'm not going to accept him today. What I'm asking you, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, that you positively respond to Jesus by saying yes. You're simply saying, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And today I accept him. I receive him as my Savior today. And I put my faith and trust in him. If you've not done that, please do that today. If you have any questions, please come and see me. I'd be glad to talk with you and pray with you about that. For all of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are the church, right? Not this building. We are the church. We are the temple of God. So the challenge for all of us that we display the Holy Spirit in our lives. The also challenge that we embrace and share the plan of God, the gospel message. And lastly, the challenge, we respond positively to the gospel and say yes to Jesus, not only in salvation, but we say yes to him when Jesus asks us to do something. Like say, hey, Doug, you need to read your Bible. Yes, Jesus. We need to get no out of our vocabulary with Jesus, right? Doug, you need, you need to kind of pray. Yes, Jesus. You need to go to church. Yes, Jesus. You need to get involved in that ministry. Yes, Jesus. Too many times we don't respond positively to Jesus. We say, no, Jesus, no, Jesus, I need, don't need to do this, but it should be yes. Yes, so respond positively to Jesus with the gospel. But I believe this morning we want to respond positively to, to the gospel as we take communion too. This morning as we take communion, get our hearts ready for communion. Because every time we take communion, we are declaring the gospel, right? 
we're coming as we take this communion, we're saying, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he was buried. And I believe that he was raised from the dead on the third day, the resurrection. So we're saying, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we're saying as we're taking communion. Communion is for all those who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have embraced it. You realize that, right? It's only for those who've embraced that, that are part of the church, that are part of the kingdom of God, they're part of the bride of Christ, that he invites us to come to the table because we recognize what he did, and that's what communion is. Remember what Jesus did for us so graciously on the cross, that he died for us. And as we take those elements, take the cup, and we take the bread, we remember Jesus gave his body and he shed his blood for you and I. So we have forgiveness of sins. Because if Jesus didn't come, we don't have forgiveness of sins. We don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We don't have the hope of eternity to be with Jesus forever and ever, do we? We don't have any of those things. But because he came and died on the cross for our sins, we have forgiveness of sins. We have the hope of eternity, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us today. So today we remember Jesus. Remember that he gave his body and he shed his blood. And as always, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, we invite you to partake with us. And, and when I get done praying, I'm going to ask you to come up and take the elements. We have three tables so we can practice social distancing. Take both cups, one on top of the other. The cracker and the juice are in those. And when I get done praying, uh, and, and take them back to your seat, we'll all take them together, okay? So let's pray. Lord, we come and we praise you. We thank you so much, God, that you are God and we're not. We thank you so much, God, as we come here this morning to understand and realize through the songs that we sing, through our prayers, through the Word of God, that Jesus, you came and you died on the cross for our sins and was buried and raised on the third day. And we so thank you for that. Because without that, Lord, there is no hope. There's no hope of eternity. There's no hope of forgiveness of sins. There's no hope of being with you forever and ever. There's no relationship with you. None of that. It's all gone. And it's only through Jesus we have that. We so thank you so much for the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. Where the Holy Spirit came. And those people received the Holy Spirit at that time. And it changed everything. That day changed everything for us. And as we look back at that day, Lord, help us to become a church where the presence of the Holy Spirit is displayed. Where we, where we present the gospel message and the plan of God to others. Where, Lord, we respond positively to the name of Jesus in all things. Help us to be people that are followers of Jesus Christ and live for you. Now, Lord, as we take communion this morning, we ask as we take it, Lord, that we might remember what Jesus so graciously did for us upon the cross. That, Lord, he gave his body and he shed his blood. And that blood that he shed on the cross was real blood. That he really did die and he really did go through to a torturous death. And then he was buried. But on that third day, he came out of that grave in a very powerful way, the resurrection of Jesus. That, Lord, today we are declaring that as we take communion. We're declaring that we believe and we embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. And this morning we are saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And I pray that each person here might examine their own hearts and minds to see if there's anything that stands between them and Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we be thankful to you and remember the cross. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sacred message, the light of the gospel that came into our hearts and minds and changed everything, that we're never the same again. And Lord, help us to be a conduit of that gospel to others. 
So Lord, as we take this communion, we ask that we surrender our hearts and minds to you, remember you, and draw closer to you during this time. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.